Again, it's good to see everyone this beautiful Lord's Day morning. Thank you for being here. We, as always, we have visitors among us. And we invite you back any opportunity you might have in the future. This, this morning, our lesson, there we go, is entitled Surrender to Win. You'll see there depicted on the screen two flags. On the left, white flag, and on the right, a checkered flag. I think we know oftentimes because we've seen enough cartoons and, and war-type movies to know that the white flag means surrender. The one who waves the white flag has decided to give up, so to speak, to, to lay down his arms and to, and to turn himself over to the opponent. On the other side there, the, the checkered flag. Those of you race fans, you know what the checkered flag means. The first car to cross the finish line and get that checkered flag is the victor. We like that, don't we? You know, the term oxymoron comes to mind when we con consider this idea of surrendering to win. You know, de uh, defined in the dictionary, the word oxymoron is a, oftentimes a figure of speech that in which apparently contradictory terms appear in conjunction with one another. Example, jumbo shrimp, awfully good. Absolutely unsure. Those terms are in conflict with each other, aren't they? They just don't go together. They don't oftentimes make sense in our way of thinking. In terms of military strategy, the concept of surrender is foreign, isn't it? If you're like me, I like to, to oftentimes read and, and watch programs about the Civil War because it's so integral into our, our culture and our lives here in the South where we are. We're close to one of the biggest battlefields and one of the bloodiest battlefields at, there at Chickamauga. But you know, the, the leader of the Confederate forces, General Robert E. Lee, when he was receiving his training at West Point, never learned anything about surrender. It wasn't taught. But there in the early weeks of April, 1865, in retreating from the Union Army's Appomattox campaign, the Army of Northern Virginia, over which he had command, had stumbled through the Virginia countryside stripped of food and supplies. You know, Lee's goal was to get to North Carolina. Those of you who've read the history there, his goal was to get his, his troops to North Carolina to get reinforcements, to join their, his troops th there and to refortify and to continue fighting. At one point, the Union cavalry had really outrun Lee's troops and actually blocked their retreat, and they captured about 6,000 men there at Sailor's Creek. Desertions of, uh, from Lee's troops were mounting daily. And on April 9th, Lee sent a message to Grant, the commander of the Un Union forces, announcing his willingness to surrender. The two generals, as you remember, met in the parlor of the Wilmer McLean home at one o'clock where, where Lee agreed to the Union's terms of surrender, effectively ending what we know as the American Civil War. But surrender was not a term found in this military man's vocabulary. How about today? Our battle. As individuals today, we're not in a military conflict. However, I would submit for us our thinking we are in a battle, are we not? A spiritual one. 
a battle with eternal consequences. Our soul is at stake. Like so many people throughout history, our battle usually involves one little four-letter word. S-E-L-F. It's a battle wherein we must surrender to win. We want to look this morning at some examples from the Bible and determine how we must conduct ourselves in this spiritual battle, so to speak, so that we can ensure that we will win. We want to first look at the Israelites at Jericho. If you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 6. We're going to think about this is a very familiar uh, passage, very familiar event that we're all familiar with. You remember how the children of Israel had left Egypt. Under Moses' command, they had left Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, and they were on their way to the land in which God had promised to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. The first battle that the Israelites faced, they found themselves there at Jericho. Jericho, the scripture tells us, was a walled city, very well fortified, heavily fortified, seemingly impossible to penetrate. But you'll notice there in verse number 2, Joshua 6, 2, God tells Joshua that I have given you Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. But Joshua and the people still had something to do. They had to follow a highly unconventional, in our terms, battle plan. In a nutshell, you know what, they, what God told them to do. March around the city daily for six days. Seven times on the seventh day, blast the trumpets and shout. And these great walls will fall down. Joshua, nor anyone else in that camp, would have drawn up such a battle plan, would they? A great, as a great military man, this would not have crossed Joshua's mind for ensuring victory over Jericho. But you know something? Just like us, they had to set aside <clears throat> their own ideas, their own opinions, <clears throat> put self aside and follow God and his instructions. They had to surrender to win. You know the rest of that account. You know that they did exactly the, what God told them through Joshua. They followed specifically to the letter, we say, the instructions. And what happened? The walls fell down. They went in and conquered the city, but they had to surrender to win. Our second example that we want to look at this morning is Naaman. You're familiar with Naaman there in 2 Kings chapter 5. There your familiar passage. <clears throat> I love the account, the biblical account of Naaman because there's, there's so many facets to it, but it is so applicable to even us today when we contemplate the need to follow God's instructions if we expect to be blessed. The Bible starts out there in 2 Kings chapter 5 talking about Naaman. What does it say? 
He's a great military man, great man of valor, commander of the army of the king of Syria, honorable man, because of, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. But what about those last three words there in verse, that verse, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 1, but a leper. Leper. In this time when in, in which Naaman lived, leprosy was a death sentence. There was no cure for it. They would be separated, ostracized from society when their disease progressed to a certain point where their skin was falling off, the flesh was falling off their bones. Highly contagious. Not something that you wanted to contract. But he learns about a possible cure. He makes a journey. He goes to the man of God, Elijah's house, stands out, so he comes to the house outside with his entourage, learns what he needs to do, go dip seven times in the Jordan River. But the Bible records in verse 11 and 12, he was angry. King James' word there is wroth. He went away in a rage. He says, behold, I thought. He needed to surrender to win, didn't he? It wasn't what he thought that was going to make the difference. It's what God said was going to make the difference. And you know the rest of that account. Thankfully, he had, a, he had a wise servant there that said, Master, if he told you to do some great thing, you would not hesitate to do it. But he told you to go simply wash in a dirty river. We know that Naaman did that. And we know what happened. His flesh became as that of a little child. He had to set aside his thoughts. He had to set aside his way, his will, his own ideas, and follow God in order to win. Look there at verse 14. 2 Kings 5, 14. So he, Naaman, went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. He was cured of his leprosy. The third example I want to look at this morning from the Bible is Jesus. While you're there in the Old Testament, look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. You know, there were over 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Many written as thousands of years before Jesus actually came to this world. Prophecies about him, various aspects of his life, of his character, of things he would do. Let's look at verses 7. 8 and 9, Isaiah 53, in context of, of Jesus. He was opposed, or excuse me, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, creator of the universe. 
all the things he suffered that the Bible records for us. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26. We want to talk for a moment about his arrest in the garden. Matthew 26. Particularly verse number 53. There he stood in front of the guard, those that had come to arrest him. You know that uh, how Judas had kissed him, signifying he was the one. He says, he asked a question. He says, do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father? and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus there, again, the creator of the universe, being turned over to the hands of men that wanted to do him harm. 12 legions of angels. You know, scholars tell us that that was, would likely, there's different ways of uh, different accounting methods back in that time as far as what a legion was, but I think it's safe to say that's between 60 and 72,000 fighting men. Now, these weren't mere men. These were angels. We've got biblical accounts of the th destruction that one angel could bring on people. 72,000. Get the picture in your mind. Angels sitting there, I, I picture them on horses or whatever, you know, however you picture it in your mind. They're just saying, say the word, Jesus. Say the word. We'll come and rescue from these evil people. But Jesus didn't say the word. He surrendered in order to win. Continue that thought there about Jesus. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, Jesus before Pilate. We talked in our adult class this morning about Jesus before Pilate. He, someone made the, the point that he could have just, he could annihilated Pilate, the whole city there and ever, everything that was there. He had that power, but yet he was submissive to the will of God and he did not do that. Chapter 18 of John, let's look at 33 through 36. John 18, 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Again, Jesus demonstrated that he had the power to do those things, but yet that wasn't his goal. His kingdom was not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. How about on the cross? Turn over a page there to John 19, verses 28 through 30. John 19, 28 through 30. This is the afternoon. There Jesus has been on the cross after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. 
Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Notice there in verse number 30 says, He gave up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He surrendered it so that we can win. The message of the gospel is one of victory. No one in the first century world would associate a cross with victory. But there are numerous passages that speak of the victory that can be ours through Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse number 37, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of my favorite passages. 1 Corinthians 15, really the whole chapter. But I want to focus on 56 and 57. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57. Paul there, the inspired writer, says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through, the Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire book of Revelation is one of victory. Remember the old preacher that said the theme of Revelation is we done won. Certainly not good English, but sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? I must surrender to win. I have to relinquish my ideas my thoughts, my opinions about salvation, I have to decide to follow Jesus who ensures me the victory. You know, Paul writing about the Christians in Macedonia, this is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and following, talks about their giving. But you notice there in verse number 5, he says, they gave of themselves first. That's the key to living a successful Christian life. We have to give ourselves first. Everything else follows. We have to surrender to win. As we kind of wrap this up this morning, just like the children of Israel, just like Naaman, we have to surrender to win. You know, Jesus had something to say on this matter. Let's look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12 Verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> Most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus speaking here, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it, must, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. So what's Jesus saying there? We know in the physical world we have to, a seed has to die in order for it to spring up in, and be fruitful. We have to die to self. And we, we bear fruit to Jesus Christ. 
we have to surrender our lives to God through the obedience of the to the obedience of the gospel. You know, we started out talking about oxymorons. Here's another one for us to consider. Born again. Born again. Those terms just do not make sense together, do they? But you know our Lord and Savior told Nicodemus, that man, that leader of the Jews that came to him by night, this is recorded in John chapter 3, that only if one is born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In human terms, that doesn't make sense, does it? That doesn't make sense. Often the Lord's instructions seem ludicrous to us. March around a city, dip in a dirty river, be baptized in water. I believe God expects us to fully trust his word, his instructions to be the best for us, no matter how strange they may seem to be. It requires one to surrender his selfish, man-made ideas and thoughts on the matter of salvation in order to win the victory that God provides. This morning, we offer God's simple plan of salvation. To the world, it doesn't make much sense. But yet, to those who believe in God, recognize the power that he has, will be willing to follow these simple instructions. Again, oftentimes seems crazy to the world. But it's what we must do. God has provided, through his word, instructions. He hasn't left us alone in terms of how to be saved, how to live acceptably, how to make it to heaven. If you would follow these simple steps, hear the word, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, Christ will add you to his church. Or in times past, you may have done those things, but you started stop following God's instructions, his way, and started following yourself once again, your own thoughts, your own ideas about how to live, separated from God by sin. If that's public in nature, it needs to be taken care of that way. Christ promises us a home in heaven if we're found faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive us if we're willing to repent and make those things right. We stand ready and able to help you in any way that we can. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation this morning, would you come? as we stand and as we sing. All to Jesus I surrender.